Psalm 30, verses 11 through 12 says, You have turned for me my mourning into dancing. You have loosened my sackcloth and clothed me with gladness, that my glory may sing your praise and not be silenced. O Lord, my God, I will give thanks to you forever. Worship them together, church.
you this morning, singing hallelujah. Father, you are worthy of our praise, worthy of the glory that you deserve. Lord, I pray you may lead us as you have in worship through song, that you may now lead us, Lord, into your word in prayer. God, speak to your people. May you open our eyes, our ears to hear your word today and receive your food. Lord, may you be magnified in all ways as we now um, open up um, and go into the book of Ecclesiastes. Lord, you are good. You're faithful. And we thank you, Father, in Jesus' name I pray. Amen. Church, you may be seated. I'm going to read to us from Hebrews 13, verse 8. Very short passage. 
God's so profound in what it says. Jesus Christ is the same yesterday and today and forever. Amen. Let's go to the Lord and let's pray. Lord, our lives in this world is such a small passing thing. It is as swift as the passing beauty of the roses. And if we are diligent and self-controlled and exercise and maintain a healthy diet, we might be able to add a few years to our lives, if we're lucky, maybe even a decade. While even just one year of extra life is a magnificent gift, in the grand scheme of eternity, our lives, however long they might be, it's just it's a small blip. Lord, and even as, as New Englanders, we know and perceive and we feel the passing of time as we live through and experience one season after another, after another, and after another, and it just all cycles again like the hands of a clock. But even as our lives pass swiftly, as the as seasons change, Lord, we are reminded in your word that you, Jesus, remain the same, that you are God, that you always have been, and you always will be. Not only that, but you never change and will always be the same. Your compassion and your grace and your kindness will never change and they will never cease because you, Lord, never change. And in that, we put our hope. Father, forgive us for our, our, uh, our vain pursuits. Forgive us for our pursuits of the fleeting pleasures of sin. Lord, we often desire them and we run to them. We are enticed by them. And when we do, we immediately feel nothing but disappointment because they never satisfy we feel shame because we have offended you. We feel guilt because we have transgressed your commands. Lord, forgive us for our failure to rest satisfied in the great treasure that you are. And if we did, and if we did so so often, more than we do so now, we would find that the delights and the treasures of this world are really not that enticing. God, as, as your servant Moses asked of you in his psalm, we ask also that you might teach us to number our days so that we may grow a heart of wisdom. And such wisdom could only result in our prizing the things that you value and finding joy in the things that honor you and living out to the righteousness that you have freely given to us in the death of your Son on the cross. Holy Spirit, we pray for all those this morning who may be in a season of trial, for those who are struggling in their walk with the Lord, for those who may be perhaps experiencing a sort of a, a dry season in their walk with Jesus. And while such times can be painful, and while certainly suffering can be painful and can be long, we ask that you would remind your people that suffering is just temporary, just as temporary as the passing seasons. 
the Apostle Paul wrote in Romans that the momentary afflictions that your children face are only preparing for them an eternal weight of glory. Momentary suffering will give way to eternal glory. So we pray that you might encourage your people with these words, that you would strengthen them with a might that is equal to the physical might of Samson. Lord, we pray for the Krognalis in Africa in the midst of incredibly busy schedules, taking care of the sick, training interns, and among other things. Lord, help them to continually depend upon you and give them the time and the discipline to be daily in your word and in prayer that they may not miss the daily meals of your word. But in those days that medical emergencies prevent them from their spiritual sustenance that comes through prayer in the word of God, we pray that you would provide grace and strength. We pray for all the staff at the Tenwick Hospital that could, as it continues to swell with many patients, far many than they can manage. Lord, we pray for physical and mental energy to keep going, especially when nights may be sleepless. God, we know that you are sovereign and providential, even in sickness. So we pray that even in providence and in your sovereignty, as sick go to the hospital to, to be made well, that they may not only receive physical healing, but that they might also leave spiritually healed by receiving Christ for the forgiveness of their sins. God, we pray for revival in New England that could only be ordained and orchestrated by your sovereign hand. We pray, God, that for the glory of your name and the eternal happiness of men, that you might bring a great conviction of sin an apprehension of eternal realities that the enemy may be bound and kept from blinding unbelievers and that there would be a, a great rush and pressing in to the kingdom of heaven through faith in Jesus Christ. We pray that your word and gospel would strike the hearts of men so that upon hearing of the magnitude of the consequences of their sins against God, that they might respond like the crowds did when Peter preached the gospel and say, what shall we do? And that all churches and all Christians might point people to the gospel of Jesus Christ. And Father, broader than that, we pray for a revival in our country. Oh Lord, what an awesome thing it might be to see the kind of repentance that we read of in the book of Jonah, men and women from the top to the bottom, all coming before you with cry, loud cries and pleadings for mercy and forgiveness and response to the preaching of the word. And certainly we are no better today than the Ninevites were. If anything, the quantity of our sins most likely far exceeds the sins of the Ninevites, but it shows just how desperate we are for divine mercy and grace. Lord, give the church boldness. Bring sinners into the church that they might be saved through the blood of Jesus Christ. And lastly, we pray this morning for all those who work in the areas of administration, in the areas of of customer service. Lord, your word teaches us that work is a good thing. 
And there is no indication in anywhere in the scriptures that work will cease in the new heavens. We pray and ask that your people would work and work well in preparation for the glorious and joy-filled work that you have prepared for your people in heaven. Lord, give your people grace and patience and humility and that, my, that they might do all their work in an honorable manner and that you would give them favor in their workplaces. Lord, we trust you for all of these things and we look forward to all that you are going to do and we also join our hearts as we pray also the prayer that Jesus taught us to pray in the scriptures. Our Father in heaven, hallowed be your name. Your kingdom come. Your will be done on earth as it is in heaven. Give us this day our daily bread and forgive us our debts as we also have forgiven our debtors. And lead us not into temptation, but deliver us from evil. For yours is the kingdom and the power and the glory forever. Amen. Amen. Please turn with me to the book of Ecclesiastes. Ecclesiastes chapter 1, we'll be reading verses 1 through 3. You'll find Ecclesiastes right after the book of Proverbs. This is right after the book of Psalms. Ecclesiastes 1, verse 1. The words of the preacher, the son of David, king in Jerusalem. Vanity of vanities, says the preacher. Vanity of vanities. All is vanity. What does man gain by all the toil at which he toils under the sun? This is the word of the Lord. Father, we pray that you would fix our hearts and our minds on your word. Lord, including my own. Lord, help us to receive your word with all humility. Help us to, to trust in your ways, even though many of those ways are mysterious to us, but help us to trust that in your mysterious ways you are working in our lives in our church, for our good, and ultimately for your glory. And we pray that that would also be the case this morning. Do the work that only you can do by the power of your spirit, we pray in Jesus' name. Amen. Everyone desires meaning, and everyone desires purpose. Nobody likes to do anything that is meaningless or purposeless. We don't like to have accomplished a task and come to realize that it was all for nothing. And we especially want meaning and purpose when it comes to our own lives. Maybe you have found yourself in a particular point in your life where you sort of realize a sort of routine in your day-to-day. -day. You get up, you go to work, you go back to bed, and the routine it goes on and on over and over again. And it's moments like that where you sort of begin to question, what is meaning? What is the purpose of life? Why am I here? Is this really what life is all about? man's search for meaning is actually a good search. It is a right search, and I think it's also given to us by the Lord himself. It is our drive for meaning that leads people to pursue wealth 
and status and honor. It is this pursuit of meaning that leads many people to live good and generous lives. It is this drive for meaning that leads people to aspire to the American dream and have a house and a white picket fence and two cars and a dog and two and a half kids or one kid or no kids. Meaning is a good thing. We want purpose. We want a reason to get up each morning. We want a purpose in our lives to be able to get us through the mundane and the tough times that we go through. It makes us feel good to know that our lives matter. However, you might be quite surprised to read the words of Kohelet, or the teacher here in the book of Ecclesiastes, saying, vanity of vanities, all is vanity. Or to put it another way, meaningless of meaninglessness, everything is meaningless. You might even be more surprised to wonder why is there a book like this in the Bible in the first place? And why are you even preaching on a book like this in the first place? The book of Ecclesiastes, I think, is considered by many Christians to be one of the most depressing books in the entire Bible. I mean, I don't remember the last time I heard of somebody telling me that they are reading through the book of Ecclesiastes. Nobody ever really gravitates towards the book of Ecclesiastes. I've never heard, maybe you have, I've never heard anybody say that Ecclesiastes is a favorite book in the entire Bible. And it's understandable because it is a complex book. It's pessimistic. It's dark. It is difficult to understand. Especially when we want meaning, the last thing we want to be told is that there is no meaning. And so today, this sort of serves as sort of an introduction to the book of Ecclesiastes. We're not going to actually get into the text of Ecclesiastes. But I sort of want to introduce the book of Ecclesiastes to you this morning. So we'll begin with the background to the book. Now concerning the background of the book, there's a, some mysteries surrounding the author of the book. Let me hold to the idea that the one who has written this book is, king, is Solomon, king of Israel. And obviously so, because the first words in the book says, the son of David, king in Jerusalem. However, some actually disagree that it is actually King Solomon who wrote these words. For example, it says in, in chapter 1, verse 16, I said in my heart, I have acquired great wisdom, surpassing all who were over Jerusalem before me. And my heart has had great experience of wisdom and knowledge. It sounds like Solomon, but he says he surpassed all those who came before him. Well, if we're talking about kings, there's only two before him, and that is David, and that is, you might also consider, King Saul. So in comparison, there's really, if we're talking about the greatness of this person, it's really not all that great if all you have to compare to is other two people who came before you. So it seems to be indicating that there were many others before him, unless he's sort of including the judges before the kings of Israel. But whoever this is, they identify themselves as the preacher or the teacher. And then the name of the book of Ecclesiastes comes from the Greek word for ekklesia, which means assembly. And so hence, we, in the Hebrew, is translated as kohelet, the one who's written this word, the teacher, is kohelet, 
which has the meaning of somebody who sits at an, assemb at an assembly or somebody who gathers. So think of sort of an, a teacher or a professor or an instructor. Or in some translations, it reads as the preacher. So it might be an unidentified individual. It could be King Solomon. I'm persuaded that it is actually King Solomon. Even though it is odd that he doesn't identify himself, if you read the book of Proverbs, which Solomon wrote, he actually names himself. He identifies himself, but he doesn't in this book. But I do think that it is King Solomon because it speaks of his greatness, because it speaks of the wisdom that surpassed all others. But there is also, whether or not you are persuaded it is King Solomon who wrote these words, and I am persuaded that it is, even more complex is the question of the interpretation of the book. And part of the problem of this interpretation is that there are apparent contradictions in the 12 chapters of this book. So for example, in 5.10, the teacher says, He who loves money will not be satisfied with money, nor he who loves wealth with his income. This also is vanity. And yet he says in 5.18, Behold, what I have seen to be good and fitting is to eat and drink and find enjoyment in all the toil with which one toils under the sun, the few days of his life that God has given him, for this is his lot. Everyone also to whom God has given wealth and possessions and power to enjoy them and to accept his lot and rejoice in his toil. This is the gift of God. So one place he says the acquiring of wealth is vain, but then he says if you have wealth, it's a gift of God, so you should enjoy it. And there are many other conflicting statements that he makes in the entire book. He says, pleasure is vain, but you should seek pleasure. Work, hard work is pointless, but you should work hard. Life of wisdom is a good life, but it is also vain. Youth is fleeting, but enjoy your youth. It's like, you have no, it's like he's speaking out of two sides of his mouth. You have no idea what he's saying, what direction he's taking. It's like he's, is it left or right, King Solomon? We're looking to be instructed. We're looking to be taught, but you're telling us two different things. It's like a squirrel in the middle of a road can't decide if we want to go left or right. Sometimes that's what sort of the preacher or the teacher sounds like. You, can't, you have no idea which direction he's going. And these contradictions, if we're not careful, can lead us into two ways of misinterpreting these contradictions and the book entirely. Either you might over-spiritualize the text. And by over-spiritualizing the text, I mean that you are sort of exceeding the intended meaning of the text. So for example, in chapter 9, verse 7, the teacher says, Go, eat your bread with joy, and drink your wine with merry hearts. Immediately somebody could stop there and say, Oh, we can eat, we can drink. We can pop that bottle of wine and we can drink all we want. Let's be happy, let's be rejoiceful. But that's not exactly what the author intended. Or you can continue to read the rest of the passage which says, for God has already approved what you do. This might be an extreme example, but I don't think it's far-fetched. And you probably can think of other examples that you have come across. But say a person is driving in the middle somewhere, lost, hasn't seen another car for miles, for 45 minutes for an hour, for a long period of time. And let's say the person has been thinking about a red Corvette all day for whatever reason. And in the middle of nowhere, he sees a red Corvette drive right past him. 
And then he goes home, open up his scriptures, and he comes to Ecclesiastes 9-7. Go, eat your bread with joy, drink your wine with a merry heart, for God has already approved what you do. And the person comes to the conclusion, wow, I've been thinking about a red Corvette all day. I saw a red Corvette today in a place that I never expected it to. I think the Lord is telling me to get a red Corvette, so I'm going to go red, red Corvette because the Lord approves of what I do, and so I can enjoy this. Right? The passage has nothing to do with whether or not you should buy a red Corvette. And probably, I could probably convince you from the Scriptures you should buy a red Corvette, especially if you can't afford it. And so we have to be careful of over-spiritualizing the text, especially when we come to sort of apparent contradictions in the book of Ecclesiastes, the other way that we might misinterpret the text is, not mis- is actually to not in- try to interpret it at all. We might read through some of these difficult passages in Ecclesiastes and come to these, some of these apparent contradictions and just gloss over them, ignore them, never think about them. But if you had, if somebody wrote you a letter, a friend, relative, whoever it might be, you'd read that letter. Let's say you came to a particular paragraph or a sentence that didn't make any sense. You can't quite understand it. It seems like they're saying something that contradicts something they said earlier. You're probably going to read that over and over again because you're going to try to understand it. And that's how we should approach the book of Ecclesiastes. We shouldn't just ignore the contradictions, but we should think, study, read it as often as we need to in order to help us to understand what it says. Now, aside from its interpretation, still under the heading of the background to the book, there is a concern with the author and a concern for you. When we... If we are diligent studies of the Word of God, something that we try to do is try to understand the context of the book, to understand the background, who wrote the book, why did he write it, what sort of, what's the occasion that produced this book. And these are helpful, helpful things to consider. Sometimes it helps to enhance the learning that comes through the study of a particular book. Sometimes we become we can become pretty fascinated by the background to the book. However, Ecclesiastes is such a mysterious book. We really don't have a whole lot of background behind the book. It's a very mysterious book, and I think it is intentional. A lot of things have been left out because at the end of the day, that extra information that we might find valuable just doesn't really matter. The author and the details that we don't know and we wish to know is not nearly as important as the message of the book. Having that information or not having that information doesn't do anything to take away or add to the overarching message of the book. Even though it is filled with contradictions, with complexities, it has this dark and pessimistic tone, there is a message for us. And the fact that we don't necessarily know when this book was written, some will argue that it could not have been Solomon who wrote this book because the Hebrew in this particular book is so complex, more complex than it would have been in King Solomon's time. 
whether or not that is the case, at the end, it doesn't matter. The timelessness of the books points to the fact that it is a book that is still relevant for us today as much as it was for its original intended audience. And regardless of where we land on the time that it was written and who it was written or who was written for and by whom it was written, the thing that we have to conclude together is that ultimately this has one divine author. And the teacher alludes to this in Ecclesiastes chapter 12. So towards the end of the book, the teacher teacher writes this. <clears throat> the words of the wise are like goads and like nails firmly fixed of the collected sayings. They are given by one shepherd. Depending on which version you have, you might see that the shepherd there is capitalized. And I think it is right. I think, he's I think he's alluding there to the divine author. Because the Bible teaches us, especially the Proverbs, the wisdom literature teaches us that all wisdom comes from God. And so the, the, the teacher here is affirming that truth. All wisdom, including the wisdom of Ecclesiastes, ultimately comes from the heavenly shepherd, the one shepherd who is the Lord God. And so the pressing question that looms over you this morning is, will you listen and receive the words of the teacher? If he is, in fact, a teacher who has gathered an assembly in order to teach the assembly and us being that assembly, will you listen and heed the words of the teacher in the book of Ecclesiastes? Despite its complexity, despite its apparent contradiction, despite its pessimistic tone, Will you receive its message of wisdom? So that's some of the backgrounds to the book. Let's talk about the themes of this book. So some of the themes in the book. One obvious theme in the book of Ecclesiastes is the theme of vanity. You hear this word repeated over and over again, and it's a difficult word to translate or to define. It essentially means vapor, something that is elusive, something you can't capture, something that is fleeting, it is why the preacher or the teacher says a striving after the wind. Have you ever tried catching or running after the wind? Right? It's impossible. You can't run after the wind. You can't catch the wind. It's meaningless. It's pointless. It's a fruitless endeavor. And so when the teacher says vanity of vanities, it mainly points to the preacher's quest for the understanding of all of life and an intention to try to comprehend all of life and then comes to conclude that all of life is incomprehensible, that you can't figure it all out. And to do so would be vain. And he says, from pleasure to work to wisdom to everything under the sun, he says, all is vanity and is striving after the wind. So vanity is the theme of the book. Another theme of the book is hedonism. And this is why, this is one of the many reasons why the book of Ecclesiastes is such a difficult and complex book, because it has this hedonistic flavor to the book. And by hedonistic, 
what that means is somebody who is a pleasure seeker, somebody who is always after pleasure, the next high, the next, uh, the next thing that satisfies, the next thing that makes you happy. That's what your life is all about. And now to some degree, we're all hedonistic because we all, to some degree, seekers of pleasure. Now the question is, will we seek pleasure in the things that honor God, or will we seek the things or pleasure in the things that honor the world? So to some degree, we all are hedonistic. But the book of Ecclesiastes seems to promote this idea of pursuing pleasure in the things of the world. Which seems to fly, right? It does fly in the face of everything else in the Bible. Especially the New Testament commands, right? He tells us, to enjoy the gift of wealth, enjoy those things. And yet we read in 1 Timothy 6, where it warns us, it cautions us that the love of money is the root to all kinds of evil. It flies in the face of commands such as self-restraint and discipline and self-control. And then another theme in the book of Ecclesiastes is the theme of death. Sorry, if the first two weren't already bad enough and dark enough, then we also have this theme of death, which only increases the pessimistic tone of the book of Ecclesiastes. And the author seems to have in mind the disastrous effects of the consequences of the fall in Genesis. Because he repeatedly references death. And it seems that to the teacher that death is ultimately the most powerful argument for the vanity of all of life. Because death ultimately is unavoidable. You can't escape it. You can't run from it. You cannot bargain with death. You cannot argue with death. You cannot give something to death in order to, ex- ex- to uh, extend your life. That death is irrespective of who you are and what you accomplish, what you have. It does not discriminate. Death comes for every single one of us. But it is here that we also see something that is severely lacking in the book of Ecclesiastes. Something that, as Christians, you and I have. Something that you and I rejoice in. Something that the teacher did not understand in his time something that the other Old Testament prophets and teachers did not understand in their time, something that we have clearly taught to us in the New Testament. And yes, we should seek to interpret the book of Ecclesiastes in its Old Testament context, but we are not just Old Testament Christians. We are New Testament Christians who believe in the death, burial, and resurrection of Jesus Christ. And the one thing that is missing in the book of Ecclesiastes is the joy of the resurrection. And so even as we read the book of Ecclesiastes and even come to grapple with this theme of death, it would be a disservice to ourselves, it would be a disservice to the Scriptures, it would be a disservice to the Lord if we did not also read it with the resurrection in mind. Because the resurrection is one of the greatest treasures prizes and joys of the Christian. And then lastly, another theme in the book of Ecclesiastes is the fear of God. And this is probably the one 
theme in the book of Ecclesiastes that, is, that gives this, this cohesiveness with the rest of the Bible. If it weren't for this particular theme, it, we probably would not find it in our Bibles. But there is this theme of the fear of God. And the fact, and, and it's interesting because the book does not mention anything about the Yahweh that saves. It does not mention anything about faith. It doesn't mention anything about the Israelites. But it does speak to the fear of God. And so while the, the book of Ecclesiastes may come off as godless, it is actually not a godless book. In fact, the book of Ecclesiastes were, was written to those who believe in God or believe in the existence of a God. And so not necessarily for the person who does not believe in any God, not written for the atheist. Even though I do think that the book of Ecclesiastes has everything to do with the godless and with the atheist. And in that light, I think that the book of Ecclesiastes can be a very effective apologetic for the Christian faith because it starts the conversation in a place where we normally would not because it brings up a topic that we don't necessarily like to talk about, and that is the theme of death. It sort of begins with the theme of death the death as the equalizer of all men, death as the thing that really essentially brings all of life into a meaninglessness or renders all of life meaninglessness. And so if you can engage in a conversation with somebody who does not know the Lord and talk about and get them to talk about death and what they think about death, that could open then a doorway to then begin to talk about the meaning of life. Because the argument in the book of Ecclesiastes, a part of the argument is that what renders life ultimately meaningless is death itself. But if we can agree on that, then we can begin to have a conversation of what actually gives meaning to life. And the argument of the teacher in the book of Ecclesiastes is that ultimately what gives meaning to life is to live it under the fear of God. So those are some of the themes in the book. Lastly, let's talk about the purpose of the book. And we can sort of discern several different purposes in the book, but I'll give you sort of three different purposes in the book of Ecclesiastes. One purpose, which is similar to the other wisdom literature in the book, of the, in the Bible, and that is its intention or its, its, its desire to impart wisdom. The book of Ecclesiastes was written for you and I so that we may grow in wisdom. It seeks to instruct, it seeks to give understanding, it seeks to give knowledge. Like the book of Proverbs, Ecclesiastes seeks to persuade us that the life of wisdom is the good life and is worthy of our pursuit. And if we're going to be pursuers of wisdom, well, then we need to first understand and define what wisdom is. And one helpful definition I found in Vine's Expository Dictionary says that wisdom is a mastery of the art of living in accordance with God's expectation. Again, wisdom is a mastery of the art of living in accordance with God's expectation. Not man's expectations. Not my expectations. 
not anyone else's expectations, not the world's expectations, but God's expectations. But the book of Proverbs and Ecclesiastes and other wisdom sections in the Bible seem to teach us is that wisdom is not something that you are born with. Wisdom is not something that is gifted to you, but wisdom is something that is learned. Wisdom is a process. Wisdom comes from living. Wisdom comes from experience. Wisdom sometimes comes from doing things that are mistakes or wrong and learning from those consequences. Wisdom is learning also from others, from your peers, but primarily from those who are older than us. Wisdom is like the mastery of an instrument, which is sort of the old usage of the word wisdom, which referred to somebody who was an expert in a particular craft or a trade or an instrument. That person was considered to be wise in this particular instrument or trade. So in the same way, somebody who is wise unto the Lord is somebody who aims to master the art of living in accordance to God's expectations. And to do so, and to strive to do so, only increases one's wisdom. And to strive to do so, that is wise. The more that a person lives in accordance with the expectations of God, the more that that person increases in wisdom. And the wise person applies wisdom to every situation in life, to everything that comes before them, to everything that, come, that is put in front of them. They aim to apply wisdom in every situation. In addition to that, if you ever read through the book of Proverbs, you might have noticed or might have seen that one of the things that Proverbs intends to do is to help you to see the value of wisdom. It, seeks, it, 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 it commands you to seek it, to strive for it, to ask for it, to plead for it, to beg for it. Why? Because it is this incredible valuable treasure, more to be treasured than the valuable, the most valuable treasures that you can find in this planet, in this world, in this life, that nothing surpasses wisdom, and so therefore it is worthy of your pursuit, and that we should be eager, hungry, greedy for more wisdom, that you can never be selfish when it comes to wisdom and the pursuit of wisdom. That is the main objective of the wisdom literature to get us to pursue wisdom because it is a prize that is incomparable to anything else that we might find in this world. And there is great wisdom in the book of Ecclesiastes. So if you desire to grow in more wisdom, then heed the words of the teacher in the book of Ecclesiastes. The second purpose of the book is to, def is to defend the life of faith in God. To defend the life of faith in God. What if you had all the money, all the authority, and all the power to do whatever you wish? Nothing was withheld from you. You can have whatever you wish. You can do whatever you wish. And no one could ever tell you otherwise. We may never find ourselves in that kind of position. But we don't need to be in that kind of position and have that kind of power and money and status to know the conclusion of those things. The teacher is a king 
most likely King Solomon, surpassing wisdom in all who came before him, all who came after him, had everything that any person could ever want. And he gave himself to the pursuit of anything that he wanted. In chapter 2, verse 9, it says, So I became great and surpassed all who were before me in Jerusalem. Also my wisdom remained with me. And whatever my eyes desired, I did not keep from them. I kept my heart from no pleasure. From my heart, for my heart found pleasure in all my toil, and this was my reward for all my toil. Then I considered all that my hands had done, and the toil I had expended in doing it. And behold, all was vanity and a striving after wind, and there was nothing to be gained under the sun. All these endeavors, all this power, all this pleasure, nothing was withheld. And at the end of the day, he came to the conclusion that it was all meaningless. And there are people in the world who may not have the kind of power and riches to the degree that King Solomon had, but they still have a lot. Who come to similar conclusions. One comedian and famous actor, Jim Carrey, had once said that he wished that everyone could become rich and famous and that they could realize all of their dreams so that they would see that that's not the answer. Even the rich and powerful come to similar conclusions that King Solomon did. Having everything you could ever want will still leave you feeling empty just as if you had nothing. But having little to next to nothing does not necessarily make life meaningful either. Man is always in a search for meaning. How they pursue it is depending on the individual. I came across this article from, from Lifehack, which is a very popular website. talks about personal productivity, talks about how to conduct your life. I mean, I think it even has like different courses and things of that nature. And came across an article that actually dealt with the meaning of life and how to find meaning in life. And so if you want to know what is a secular person's pursuit of meaning, how do they find meaning, this article tells you to find meaning in your life. First, you need to know that you matter, that you are significant. Next, step out of your comfort zone. Do something uncomfortable. Take some risks. Thirdly, Follow your heart. You know the Bible says about following the heart, don't we? And fourth, don't let go of your passions. Whatever you're passionate about, let that drive you. Pursue those things. Work hard after those things. Don't let go of your passions. And there you'll find meaning. That is a secularist conclusion of the meaning of life or how to find meaning in life. But the teacher's conclusion is that the most meaningful life that a person can live is the kind of life that lives in the fear of God. That meaning and purpose is not found out there. It's not found in the heart. It's not found in your passions. But the meaning and purpose of life begins with God. One commentator writes that the preacher or the teacher wishes to deliver us from rosy-colored, self-confident, godless life with its inevitable cynicism and bitterness, and from trusting in wisdom, pleasure, wealth, 
in human justice or integrity. He wishes to drive us to see that God is there, that he is good and generous, and that only such an outlook makes life coherent and fulfilling. Lastly, another purpose of the book of Ecclesiastes is to help you and I see reality. In Acts 17, verse 16, it tells us that while Paul was waiting for them at Athens, his spirit was provoked within him as he saw that the city was full of idols. So he reasoned in the synagogue with the Jews and the devout persons and in the marketplace every day with those who happened to be there. Some of the Epicurean and Stoic philosophers also conversed with him, and some said, what does this babbler wish to say? Others said, he seems to be a preacher of foreign divinities because he was preaching Jesus and the resurrection. And they took him and brought him to the Areopagus, saying, may we know what this new teaching is that you are presenting? For you bring some strange things to our ears. We wish to know, therefore, what these things mean. Now all the Athenians and the foreigners who lived there would spend their time in nothing except telling or hearing something new. So Paul, standing in the midst of the Areopagus, said, Men of Athens, I perceive that in every way you are very religious. For as I passed along and observed the objects of your worship, I found also an altar with this inscription, To the unknown God. What therefore you worship as unknown, this I proclaim to you. The God who made the world and everything in it, being Lord of heaven and earth, does not live in temples made by hand, nor is he served by human hands, as though he needed anything, since he himself gives to all mankind life and breath and everything. And he made from one man every nation of mankind to live on all the face of the earth, having determined allotted periods and the boundaries of their dwelling place, that they should seek God and perhaps feel their way toward him and find him. Yet he is actually not far from each one of us, for in him we live and move and have our being, even as some of your own poets have said, but we are indeed his offspring. Being then God's offspring, we ought not to think that the divine being is like gold or silver or stone, an image formed by the arts and imagination of man. The times of ignorance God overlooked, but now he commands all people everywhere to repent because he has fixed a day on which he will judge the world in righteousness by a man whom he has appointed. And of this he has given assurance to all by raising him from the dead. So here's the Apostle Paul in this pagan city, surrounded by pagan idols, people given to religiosity, worshiping all these different idols, worshiping in different ways. And he's preaching the gospel of Jesus Christ. What Paul is essentially doing here is preaching reality. He is pushing past the illusions. He's essentially declaring all of these things are illusions. And I'm here to present you with the truth. I'm here to present you with reality. This unknown God that you worship, I know this God. This God can actually be known. This is the God who made the heavens and the earth. This is the God who made man in his image. This is the God who sent his son into the world to die for sinners and rose again from the dead. He is presenting to them reality, and this is also the purpose of Ecclesiastes, to present us with reality so that we may not be deceived by the illusions of the world. And there are many illusions in the world, such as, for example, that money and great wealth will satisfy. That you need to look like the person on the cover of a magazine to be noticed and to be loved. That 
giving our children the freedom to choose whatever they want to do and be whatever they want to be will make them most happy. That being the most productive that you can be with your life is what gives you satisfaction and purpose. That you can change your biological and physical structure to be whatever you want and that doing so will make you most happy. That breaking your marriage to be with someone else will be fulfilling. That wearing a certain fragrance or cologne will make you much more attractive. That if our children get good grades and land a great job, this will give them great satisfaction and purpose in life. And there are many others, many other illusions in the world. And Ecclesiastes aims to get us to see past all of those illusions. The, wealth, the illusions of wealth and status and pleasure to see the one reality that there is a God above and that when life is lived apart from God, nothing that you can do with your short life in this world, no matter how big or small, will matter a single bit. That it doesn't matter how many contributions one has made with their life. At the end of the day, men are just men. People come, people go. If somebody wasn't alive to make the incredible contributions that they did to society and to the world, somebody else would have made the same discoveries and the same contributions. The meaning is not determined by those things. But meaning is determined by God and living in the fear of God. Living according to God's expectation. And what God expects most from the world is to trust in the Lord Jesus Christ, the Savior of the world, who died on the cross for the sins of his people and rose again from the dead. If we find the book of Ecclesiastes difficult, or if we find that we're put off by it, perhaps even repulsed by the book of Ecclesiastes, the reason might be because the book seeks to answer the kinds of questions that we don't really want to ask. But if you're willing to sit through its 12 chapters, think deeply on its content, accept its teaching, even the things that are difficult to accept, then you will find yourself becoming wiser. So again, the question is, will you listen and receive the words of the teacher? And despite its dark and pessimistic tone, despite its apparent contradictions, the path, the, despite it's getting us to think about things that we may not necessarily want to think about, will you listen and be taught by the words of the teacher so that you may grow in wisdom? So this morning we have uh, an opportunity to respond to the word to, what, to everything we've done this morning through taking communion. And so if you haven't picked up your communion cup, uh, you are free to do so at this time. They're in the back in the table. Know that the Bible tells us in 1 Corinthians that, that the cross is the wisdom of God. which is quite bizarre when you think about what the cross means and what it was intended for. The cross was intended to be an instrument of execution. 
to kill those who are thieves, the most despicable men of society, murderers. And the Bible says that the cross is the wisdom of God. It is the wisdom of God because on the cross, the righteous was crucified for the unrighteous. The cross is the wisdom of God because on the cross, the blood of Jesus Christ was spilled for our forgiveness. The word or the cross is the wisdom of God because it is the place where you and I are reconciled with God. And the cross is the wisdom of God because when we look and gaze and reflect on the cross, we see that it is empty, pointing us to the Savior who was crucified but was risen from the grave as an assurance of our salvation and as an assurance of our future resurrection. The cross is the wisdom of God because it is only through the cross that anyone can conquer death and live the kind of purposeful and meaningful life that God has intended for you and I. And so as we take this communion together, let us reflect on the cross of Jesus Christ. Let us reflect on what Christ has done for us. And let us also reflect on what Christ will do for us, namely that he will return and gather up his people to live forever with him. So if you are here and you are uh, if you are a believer, follower of Jesus Christ, if your life is characterized by the repentance that God requires, not perfect holiness or perfect righteousness, if you have also received baptism, regardless of whether or not you are a member here at Seacoast Community Church, you are welcome to take this meal as a brother or sister in Christ. But if you have yet to receive the Lord Jesus as your Savior, then it is best that you, not, that you do not take this meal with us because the scriptures teach us that this is a meal intended for the household of God. That is those who belong to the household of God through faith in Jesus Christ. But even as we take this meal, I would ask that you would ponder and reflect of what you've heard this morning. Right? Death comes for everyone. It could come in 10 years, it could come in a year, it could come even this very day. And the question is not, did I live a meaningful and purposeful life? But does God think that I have lived a meaningful and purposeful, purposeful life? And that life that is lived on purpose and with meaning is the life that God has determined or has intended for us to live. And the only way we can live that kind of life is through faith in Jesus Christ. And that today could be the day of salvation for you. Take that leap of faith. Take that leap of wisdom and trust in the gospel of Jesus Christ for your salvation. And you will receive forgiveness of sins and you will receive eternal life through Jesus Christ. And if you are here this morning, and if you are a brother or sister in Christ, even as we take this meal, do so with assurance, do so with confidence. Regardless of the sins of today, regardless of the sins of yesterday or this past week, you may have given yourself to some tasks that were foolish, that were hedonistic and for the pursuit of pleasures in the world. But you can confess your sins to the Lord. And this meal is a reminder that you have the forgiveness of your sins through faith in Jesus Christ who died on the cross on behalf of every single one of your sins. Trust in the Lord for his forgiveness. So let me read to us 
passage of Scripture, and then we'll take the bread, and I'll read another passage of Scripture, and then we'll take the cup, and I'll conclude with a prayer, and then we'll finish with one last song. In 1 Corinthians 11, verse 23, For I received from the Lord what I also delivered to you, that, on the Lord, that the Lord Jesus, on the night when he was betrayed, he took bread, and when he had given thanks, he broke it, and said, This is my body, which is for you. Do this in remembrance of me. Amen. So let's take this together. In the same way also he took the cup after supper, saying, This cup is a new covenant in my blood. Do this as often as you drink it in remembrance of me, for as often as you eat this bread and drink this cup, you proclaim the Lord's death until he comes. Amen. Let's take this. Lord, we praise you and we thank you for your dying on our behalf. We praise you, we worship you, Lord God, for the wisdom that we see in the cross, the means by which you have given to us the righteousness of Jesus Christ through our faith in him. We thank you for this wisdom that is greater than the wisdom of the world. A stumbling block for many in the world, certainly. But for us, a great joy. Lord, we pray and ask that you would grow us in wisdom. God, we need wisdom. We need more of it every day. We need wisdom in making decisions. We need wisdom in living out what you expect of us. We need wisdom in the raising of our children. We need wisdom in relating to others. We need wisdom in the workplace. God, we are so desperate for more wisdom. So we pray and ask that you would give us more wisdom. And your word tells us that if anyone desires or lacks wisdom, let him ask God, for he gives it generously. So we do pray and ask that you would grow us in wisdom, Lord. And that we may never be satisfied with the wisdom that we may have but that we would desire to grow in more and more wisdom. And we know that your wisdom is good and is right and is true and more to be treasured and valued than any treasure in this world. We pray that by your spirit you may help us to pursue this wisdom that can only come from above. We pray in Jesus' name. Amen. In response of uh, today's message, amen, let's stand and worship one more time for the body.
given.
Lord, and as we behold you, O oh God, may we, may we not forget to seek, Lord, your wisdom as we pursue, Lord, our purpose, our fulfillment in Christ. May we seek that individually. Uh, may we seek that as a body, as a church. Lord, continue to lead us as we continue to trust in you. May you be glorified, Father, as we move forward. Father, lead us. Lead us in your wisdom, in your desires. Father, we thank you for our time today and for today's benediction. I'll be reading out of Romans. And church, may this be a blessing to you. It says, now to him who is able to strengthen you according to my gospel and the preaching of Jesus Christ, according to the revelation of the mystery that was kept secret for long ages, but has now been disclosed and through the prophetic writings has been made known to all nations according to the command of the eternal God to bring about the obedience of faith to the only wise God be glory forevermore through Jesus Christ. Amen. Amen. Church, God bless you. You're dismissed.